As we come now before the Word of God, would you please turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read along with me, to John's Gospel. Uh, This is now in the New Testament. The Gospel according to John will be in the first chapter this morning. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Lord, you tell us in your word that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by you. And since it is breathed out by you, it is profitable for teaching and for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, would you do that work now in us? Press your word upon our hearts that we would be changed. Lord, would you shape us from the inside out and guide us now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the first chapter of of John. I want to take up here just a handful of verses, beginning in verse 35. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of God. Now, before we even begin to unpack this, Text. We first need to address why we are here in this particular part of Scripture. We have just ended many months through just the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. And uh, we completed our time, not the whole book, but our time in Exodus last week. So this Sunday, I had intended to begin to lead us through the book of James. And, uh, and we will still go there. At least that will be my new plan. Uh, we will still go there in just a few weeks. But after some thought and some prayer, I got the sense that for me at least, and also for us, that we, we need to spend some time directly with Jesus in the Gospels. So here we are now in in the book of John. 
And just to be clear, in saying that we need to spend some time directly with Jesus here, I am not saying, not saying that the Gospels or that the New Testament is superior to the rest of the Bible. We know some Christians think that way, that some Christians really barely touch the Old Testament. You know, maybe the Psalms once in a while, occasionally a little proverb here and there, but it's almost exclusively the New Testament. If that's the case, that is such a loss. We know that the Bible from cover to cover is a collection of books, a library in that sense of books of various genres, but they all fit together into one big, grand, coherent narrative. The Bible is a single, true story whose main character is God. So there is a sense in which the whole Bible, not only the Gospels, but the whole Bible is about Jesus. Jesus mentions something similar to this later in John's Gospel in chapter 5, verse 39. He says to the people, you search the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, you search the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. So the scripture, Jesus says, all of the scripture is speaking about him. So all of the time that we have spent in Exodus is in some sense about Jesus, that Jesus is the one who led them out of, out of Egypt, and we would be missing something without that book. We would be missing something of the knowledge of Christ. Now, all that said, it is still valid. It is still important for us that we spend time at Jesus' very feet. We know Christ is our life. So we will be here at his feet now for a few weeks in John's gospel. We are not reading through the whole uh, book as we often do, whole books or at least whole sections of the book. We will not do that, but instead we'll spend a few weeks parachuting uh, just dropping into various sections of John's gospel, specifically looking at places where Jesus is asking the people a particular question. And we want to listen to the question that Jesus asks. What's specifically interesting about the questions Jesus asks is that we know that because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, you know, there's Father, Son, and Spirit, Christ is the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. And Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, so Christ is God. When Christ became man, he did not abandon his deity. The Trinity did not become a divinity when Christ came to earth. He is still God. He is God and man. So Christ is God even during his time on earth. That's why we hear things said about him like we hear at the very end of chapter 2. And and. Uh, they, no one needed to bear witness about man, for he, Jesus, he knew what was in man. Jesus knows what is in man already. We also hear it said of him at the end of John's gospel, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. 
that even while Jesus is a servant on earth, he is also the omniscient creator and sustainer of the universe. How that all fits together is a paradox uh, that we can't quite address now, but uh, we can address that when Jesus asks people a question, that question is not for his own knowledge or benefit. He already knows. So Jesus asks the question then for our benefit, that the questions of Jesus are really to guide us to see truth. So as we listen to the questions of Jesus, we want to keep in the back of our mind at least two things. One, what does it reveal about us? And two, what does it reveal about Jesus? The particular question from this text that we're unpacking today, you'll see is in verse 38 at the end there. The question is this, what are you seeking What are you seeking? Let's give this question a little bit of context. What's going on here? If you were reading a red-letter Bible, is that still a thing? Does anyone have a red-letter Bible still? I used to when I was younger. Red-letter Bibles are the ones that, uh, that print uh, the, the words of Jesus with red ink in your Bible. If you don't have that, that's fine. I don't uh, these days either. But if you had one of those, you might notice that these words are the first red letters you see in the Gospel of John. These are the first words that we hear out of the mouth of Jesus in the book. Prior to this in John's Gospel, we have heard about Jesus or have seen Jesus only from a distance. So the book begins with this kind of big theological treatise almost, some theological background about who Jesus is, that Christ is the Word who was with God and who is God from the beginning. But then after the writer unpacks this, then, then the next scene that we actually see is, is not Jesus, but John the Baptist, who seems to come out of nowhere in some ways. You know, here's John the Baptist walking around. This is a different John than the author John, John the Baptist here. Then he talks about how he himself is not the Christ. He is the one preparing the way for the Lord. And then in the next scene, we finally see Jesus, but only from a distance. John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we don't actually get to come up close or hear from him or talk with him. It's as if we're kind of circling around Christ uh, before we can get close enough to actually hear from him. But finally, in this section, we interact with the Christ that we've been reading about in the former verses. This scene opens with John the Baptist and two men. One of those men is Andrew. Andrew, who eventually becomes one of the 12 apostles. The other of the two is not named. Could be almost anyone, although we assume this is John the Apostle, the one who wrote the book here, the author. It's common of his style not to name himself uh, for uh, various reasons. But, but here, are, here are these two men, Andrew and probably John, and these two are disciples, but not of Jesus. If you look carefully in verse 35, where we began, it starts by saying, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
These two guys are John's disciples. So here they are standing around with their teacher, these disciples of John, and John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by, and for the second time now in the gospel, he says again, Behold, the Lamb of God. And something about that made these two other men begin to follow after Jesus. Now, when it says that they followed Jesus, it does not mean that they have become disciples of Jesus. They will be. They will become disciples of Jesus, but not yet. No one is described as a disciple of Jesus until the second chapter of, of John. So in, there's many senses in which a person could follow someone. Did you ever play when you were a kid um, uh, some form of follow the leader? This is one of the uh, kindergarten teacher's tricks. You know, when it's just, they're just out of control, it's like, all right, we're going to play follow the leader. One way in which you can play follow the leader is there is someone who does something silly. You know, raise your hands, and then everyone raises their hands, or they do a little dance or spin around three times and sit down. Follow the leader. You can follow in the sense that you do everything the leader does that you mimic the moves of the leader. That's one way to play follow the leader. But you can also just have follow the leader in the sense that you walk behind a person, which is kind of a sneaky way to just get kids to stay in order. But you can follow the leader in the sense that you're just following after the person who's in front of you. So that first sense of following the leader, mimicking everything that they do, wanting to follow them in that sense, that's how these men were following John as their teacher or master. They want to become like him, but it's the second sense that they're following Jesus. They're just walking behind him. And it's as they're walking behind him that Jesus stops, turns around, sees them, and then speaks for the first time in John's gospel where we hear his question. What are you seeking? What do you want? <laughs> I, I think those are fascinating, interesting first words to hear from the Lord. They just seem like such casual, you know, almost like pseudo-mundane words to say, especially when we compare it to Christ's first words in the other three Gospels. So in, in Matthew, the first words we hear from Jesus are about his baptism, where he says, this, this is done because it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. How profound does that sound? And, and in Mark's Gospel, the first words we hear from Jesus are about the kingdom of God that he says the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe. And then the first words we hear from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke are when Christ is at the temple and he says to his parents, didn't you know that I must be at my father's house? How profound are all of those? And then here in John we get, what do you want? I think there is more here than meets the ear. We know that John, the author of this gospel, often plays with you know, double meanings within his writings. So I think he intends for us, the listener, the reader of this, to think deeper about this question. That on one level, of course, he's just asking, what are you seeking to the two guys? 
What's your reason for walking behind me? But on a deeper level, he's asking, what are you seeking? That he's really asking us as the listener, what is it that you are really looking for? That is suddenly a very profound question worth pondering. What do you want is more than just a, you know, Christmas list. It's not just pulling out the Sears Roebuck catalog and circling the things that you'd like to have. What do you want in the sense of look at the deep desires of your heart? What is it that I am really seeking after? Think about that. What are you seeking? We know for some people, and this even on some level includes myself, for some people, this can feel like a scary question to ask, what are you seeking? It can feel almost threatening to take a real, honest look at our deeper desires. Part of that is because we know if, I, if we look into our deep desires that it may uncover some deep sin in us, some profoundly unholy things. And that I know that without the grace of God, no one seeks after God that in that sense I am wandering off on my own, that it is not good in some sense then to follow my heart because my heart will often go astray, my desires are askew. But even given that, the question can also feel threatening because even in our good desires, our holy desires, sometimes, listen, sometimes we have trained ourselves not to get our hopes up. Because even in the good desires, it can sometimes feel easier to just squash them because I don't want to get disappointed again. That it feels awful to get my hopes up and then be let down. And if that happens enough, again and again, we sometimes begin to think that we can never be satisfied. That there is no hope of fulfillment for our deep good desires. C.S. Lewis addresses this uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, in a chapter that he calls Hope. But he writes this. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to, to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. What Lewis is telling us here is that these good desires are not meant to be squashed within us, but they're meant to be used as pointers to good things. So then we see here in this scene that the eternal Christ has stepped down onto the earth and has stirred up hope in us. What is it that you want? What is it that you want? So that as we meet him, we, we get the first inklings that maybe, you know, maybe, just maybe, Jesus might be this real thing that I've been looking for. That maybe Jesus might be everything that I have longed for in some deep part of myself. That he, he might just be that drink of living water that will make me never thirst again. Jesus stirs all that up, digging deep within us. What are you seeking? Now, these are considerations that I think are meant for us here as the reader, as we reflect on who Christ is here in the gospel. That is not something that would have been on the mind of these two men in this particular scene. The two men who are just walking behind Jesus would not be thinking this deeply about the question. They would take the question at face value, as all of us would. You know, And so as they're asked from Jesus, what are you seeking? What happens then as a result of that shows us something true about Jesus as well. So they're walking behind him. Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? They answer Jesus' question with a question. Verse 38 at the end, they ask him back, Jesus, teacher, where are you staying? In other words, can we come with you? Can we spend some time with you? Can we know a little bit more about you? Now keep in mind that these men are not disciples of Jesus yet. They're, they're not mimicking him as the follower of the leader. They're just seekers in the sense that they're following. They're walking behind him. We don't know their motives here. Uh, maybe they were just curious about Jesus. Maybe they were interested in him for some particular reason. Something about being called the Lamb of God might have sparked that. Maybe there was just some vague sense that there must be something more to this guy. We don't really know. But we do see that what they wanted, what they were seeking, was to go with him. And Jesus' response when they say, where are you saying? His response then back is to say, come and see. Come and see. When he says come and see, see what? 
You know, it's not just to see where Jesus is staying, although, of course, they did go there. You know, it's not like, oh, come see my house. Let me give you a little tour of the place. Here's my bed. Here's where I cook my meals. That's not the intent. He said, come and see who I am. Come and see the Lamb of God. Come and see the teacher. See the Messiah, the Christ. Come and see. These two men had no idea what they were in for. But they came, and they saw. They went to the place where Christ was staying. We're told it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so it's likely that they stayed the night there, passed the evening just talking. And in that visit, we have no idea what it was that they talked about. Oh, how much I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that conversation just to hear what was said, but we have no idea. What we do know is that day with Jesus changed them. It moved them into a different kind of follow the leader. They're not just now walking behind him. They start to want to be like him, that he's the leader, the master in this day, they go from curious to convert, from interested to invested, from explorers to evangelists. The first thing that we see Andrew do after this incident is to go fetch his brother Peter. Hey, Peter, come. I want you to see this guy, Jesus. And for them, this is only the beginning, of course. There are still lots that they have yet to understand about Jesus, lots that is still beyond them. Most especially, they have no idea that he will die as a sacrifice for them, that he will take on the wrath as a payment for sin in their place and on the third day then be resurrected from the dead. They have no idea that will happen. They will learn that in time, but not yet. Here... They have seen enough of Jesus, though, to want to follow him. And so they put the first steps of faith in him here. Now, final piece of this. What does all of this show us about Jesus? This shows us at least that Jesus is not content to leave us as seekers. Let me say that again. Jesus is not content to leave us as seekers. We know seeking can be very good especially with really important matters. We want to seek, to think, to, to weigh things with care. So if you're considering buying a house, you don't just, the first one you pass, that one, I'll get it. You, know, you probably take a lot of time and thought, study even, so really think about it really hard and consider everything. You don't just snap at the first thing you see. Same with dating. You probably don't just snap at the first thing. It's to seek, to think. Also, with good choosing good company, to really seek after that wealth. Same with faith. 
we're encouraged to think wisely about this, to consider what is true of faith, but, but the seeking itself is never the goal. The seeking itself is never the goal. We were never meant to live in a seeking mode. Seeking is a means to an end. So when Jesus teaches on prayer, he says, seek. Yes, seeking is good. Seek and, seek and you will find. That's the goal is to find. Knock, yes, knock and it will be opened. Ask and you will receive. There is a goal as the end of the seeking. Some people choose to be lifelong seekers. And I'm not just talking about people who love to explore or like new things. You know, adventurousness is a whole different thing. That's not what I mean here. I'm talking about those people who don't really want to find. Those people who can never commit, who are never really attached, or the way Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, who are always learning but never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These are the sort of people that when it comes to faith in Christ would say, yeah, I'm open to Jesus. I'm open to Jesus, but I want to keep my options open. I'll follow behind Jesus until I find something better. That kind of person never really finds Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to be open to me. He says, I want you to come to me. Follow me. Stay with me. Abide with me. Seek me so that you will find all that you've ever been looking for. When Jesus asks the question, what are you seeking? It's an invitation. An invitation to follow and to be in the very presence of God. He says, come and see. Now what do you say? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, it is a heavy call to examine what it is that we really deeply desire. Lord, would you shape, purge anything that is unholy within us, that our desires would be conformed to you, that we would see you as the treasure hidden in a field, as the pearl of great value. Thank you for calling us in to follow you. And Lord, as we follow you, would you bring us great delight? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.